This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Today we bring you an interview recorded quite a long time ago, but still a lot of fresh insights onto the show. Today, we discuss activism on campuses in the United States from LGBTQ students to Christian conservatives with Dr. Jonathan Coley, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Oklahoma State University. Social movements and social change on campus stay with us. Well, I'm so happy to welcome Dr. Jonathan Coley, Assistant Professor of Sociology at OSU. That's the Oklahoma State University. Dr. Coley is author of Gay on God's Campus, Mobilizing for LGBT Equality at Christian Colleges and Universities, published in 2018 by the University of North Carolina Press. Coley has also published a series of articles at the intersection of the sociology of religion and social movements, often focusing on LGBTQ activism. His most recent papers include Reframing, Reconciling, and Individualizing How LGBTQ Activist Groups Shape Approaches to Religion and Sexuality, published in the Sociology of Religion in 2020, and Mobilizing for Religious Freedom, Educational Opportunity Structures and Outcomes of Conservative Christian Campus Activism, published in the book Power and Protest in 2021. Jonathan and I went to graduate school together, and we're currently working on a project around housing policies at religiously affiliated colleges and universities in the United States. Well, Jonathan, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the Annex. Thank you so much, Dan. It's always good to connect with you and talk with you. Happy to be here. Well, we're really excited to talk about your 2018 book, which is a comparative case study of LGBTQ activism across four Christian university campuses. But before we get into the details, what were you trying to understand about these schools and the LGBTQ students who enroll in them? Yeah, absolutely. This book, Gay on God's Campus, takes a social movement lens to understanding how LGBTQ students at Christian colleges and universities in the United States create change at their schools, convince administrators to approve LGBTQ student groups, convince administrators to adopt non-discrimination policies, and try to win acceptance over hearts and minds from fellow students, as well as staff and faculty at their schools. I'm especially interested in not just hardships faced by LGBTQ students at Christian colleges and universities, but how they actually enact change and pathways they take to getting into activist groups, how the activist groups on their campuses transform themselves as well. What is cool about this book is that it takes account of some of the oppressions and the hardships, as you say, that these students face, both individually and as groups. But for me, what's so great about social movements is that these are groups that are intent on change in some way. And for those people who would advocate for the same changes, it's positive. It is very encouraging to learn and try to understand the stories and the strategies and tactics that these groups use you know, if we want to see more inclusive campus environments for LGBT students our institutions. So it's not all doom and gloom in sociology. Sometimes there are things that are positive or things that make good change. Of course, not everyone may see it as good change, but many people do. So in your interviews, what did you learn about why LGBTQ students choose to attend Christian colleges and universities? I'm sure you get this question a lot. There are over 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States. Many of them are secular. They're not religiously affiliated, or if they were at one time, they're no longer. And so you know, what were LGBTQ students looking for as they decided to attend a Christian college or university, maybe even ones that have like overt discrimination policies against folks who are like them? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I conducted in-depth interviews with LGBTQ students as well as allied students at four Christian colleges and universities in the United States. And I learned a lot just about the different reasons why students choose to attend these schools. Honestly, most of the reasons why LGBTQ students attend Christian colleges and universities seem identical to the reasons that straight students, heterosexual and cisgender students choose to attend Christian colleges and universities. For example, Christian colleges and universities might be close to home. Some students want to live within driving distance of their parents. Sometimes the Christian colleges and universities are far from home. <laughs> Sometimes students want to be far away from their parents, not within a day's driving distance. And maybe the schools are located in really great cities with more vibrant LGBTQ populations. Some Christian colleges and universities are really great academically. They're ranked among the top Christian colleges and universities in the United States. Some of these schools give students a lot of financial aid. And so it's much more affordable to go to a Christian college and university as compared to some other private university. And, you know, a lot of Christian colleges and universities now actually claim to support LGBTQ students. They might have LGBTQ student groups. They might have inclusive statements in their non-discrimination policies. So Christian colleges and universities attract LGBTQ students for those reasons I mentioned. I mean, it's definitely true, though, that there are some Christian colleges and universities that have more discriminatory policies. And when LGBTQ students choose to attend those schools, sometimes they maybe are not aware of the policies, but more often they might be struggling with their sexual identity and they feel like going to a Christian university will help them sort out questions surrounding faith and their sexual and gender identity. Sometimes parents pressure students to go to Christian colleges and universities, whereas they might not attend those schools otherwise. So it's also true too that sometimes LGBTQ students end up at discriminatory schools, uh, sometimes end up regretting the decision, but they're there nonetheless. Well, sometimes straight students who end up choosing different schools or a school end up regretting that and they transfer, or they do all kinds of things. So it is super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. How similar these students are to their students. And even though there are special considerations for LGBT students, you know, some of whom may not have fully you know, come out to themselves yet or really understood their own sexuality. I certainly know people in college who didn't come to a full understanding of their sexual identification or identity until they graduated. So it's important to think of these things as processes. And not everyone has everything figured out when they're Absolutely. 17, 18, going to college. Okay, so I'm interested in your case selection process. So which four schools did you study and why? What types of issues were LGBT students facing at each of these schools? The four schools that I studied were Loyola University, Chicago in Illinois, Goshen College in Northern Indiana, Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. When I was looking at the larger database landscape of Christian colleges and, and universities in the United States and thinking about which schools I wanted to study in depth, I was trying to look for schools where LGBTQ students were actively mobilizing uh, to try to bring about some change on their campuses. So there are some Christian colleges and universities out there, especially small Bible colleges, as well as schools like Bob Jones that are so repressive and so discriminatory, you hardly see any active LGBTQ mobilization at those schools. So for better or worse, I wasn't really able to study those types of schools. You also have some Christian colleges and universities that honestly are affiliated with a religious denomination, Christian denomination, but that Christian identity doesn't necessarily hold much importance at that university. And LGBTQ students sometimes are hardly even aware at those types of universities that their school has religious affiliation. I wasn't studying the most conservative 
Christian colleges and universities out there and the most welcoming and progressive Christian colleges and universities out there. Instead, I, I wanted to study Christian colleges and universities where students were actively mobilizing around some problem. And then I also wanted to select schools that varied in terms of the state they were in. Illinois is a very blue state. Washington, D.C. Is, is not a state, but it's a very blue city, whereas Indiana and Tennessee are, are both red states. So I wanted to capture some variation in the socio-political environment these schools were embedded in. And then finally, I wanted to have some variation just with the specific religious tradition these schools are associated with. So Loyola University of Chicago is a Catholic Jesuit university. Catholic University of America is a Catholic university, of course, whereas Belmont University is, is non-denominational Christian now, um, but was historically associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. And Goshen, Indiana is a small Mennonite college associated with the Mennonite Church USA. So basically, those are the considerations um, I was weighing when I was trying to figure out which schools to study. Uh, and then I think the other part of your question was what issues were students facing at those schools? Yeah, before you answer that, it seems like what you have is two Catholic schools, two Protestant schools, two political contexts in terms of state or locality. And then Loyola being a, a Catholic and Jesuit school has a reputation for being much more inclusive than Catholic University of America, which is controlled by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops or maybe even Rome and, and has a reputation for being much more theologically conservative, I guess one you would say. Absolutely. Like there, there are nearly 200 Catholic colleges and universities in the United States, but Catholic University of America is the only Catholic university that received its charter from the Vatican. And then on the Protestant side, a Southern Baptist or a Tennessee Southern Baptist Convention school, at least a school in that tradition. Yeah. And then the Mennonites, which is a whole other area of Protestantism associated with generally more progressive attitudes in, in lots of ways. So, I mean, what's what's creative about this and and thoughtful about it is how the different schools occupy complementary locations in like a two by two matrix if folks are thinking about this in their in their heads. Yeah, absolutely. Clever. Thank you. Yeah. So because these schools were associated with a range of conservative or more liberal religious traditions and were in more conservative or liberal states, there were differences in the types of issues that LGBTQ students faced at the universities. Loyola University of Chicago in the very blue city of Chicago, associated with the Jesuit tradition, by far the most progressive school in my sample. There was an official LGBTQ student group there. You will find the sexual orientation and gender identity in the school's non-discrimination policy. But even there, students were running into issues. For example, when the state legalized same-sex marriage, Loyola University of Chicago quickly passed a policy stating that only so-called opposite-sex couples, male-female couples, could have weddings at the school. And uh, students mobilized there to protest the policy, although it, it remains in place to this day. Uh, Catholic University of America, by comparison, having received its charter from the Vatican and uh, being very influenced by people high up in the Catholic Church hierarchy, is a much different kind of campus environment. The school does not have an officially recognized LGBTQ student group and does not have a non-discrimination policy inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity. The school actually used to have a, a lesbian and gay student group back in the 1980s, but it, it just doesn't anymore. And so students there were just fighting for basic recognition. Goshen College is uh, another really interesting site. Goshen College calls itself a social justice college. And your typical student there is going to protests pretty regularly, is pretty fired up about social justice issues. And the school does have an officially recognized LGBTQ student group. It has for some time. But the school did not have sexual orientation or gender identity in the 
non-discrimination policy. And faculty or staff at the school, at the time I was doing interviews, 2013, 2014, could actually be fired if they came out as gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender. So students were mobilizing to try to add sexual orientation or gender identity to the non-discrimination policy. And then finally, Belmont University is another really interesting case. The school had for a long time denied students the ability to form an LGBTQ student group. And in the fall of 2010, the school actually suddenly let go a soccer coach who had come out to her soccer team as a lesbian. But students there protested, held sit-ins, outside rallies, media availability, and successfully pressured their school in pretty quick fashion to approve an LGBTQ student group and to add sexual orientation to the non-discrimination policy. So those are the types of issues that students were actively mobilizing around at these schools back when I was doing interviews in 2013, 2014. So there's basic recognition, there's adding non-discrimination to official policies. Absolutely. There's accepted student groups you know, with maybe long traditions, but still barriers in terms of in terms of marriage or other kinds of things that you can can do that, you know, straight folks wouldn't wouldn't uh, face a barrier on on those. Um, so so what methods then do LGBTQ students use to bring about change at their at their Christian colleges and universities? Great question. So in the book, I identify three types of activist groups that LGBTQ students form at these schools. One type of activist group is what I call a direct action group. These groups are kind of like what I just mentioned happened at Belmont, organizing sit-ins, rallies, protests to try to achieve some type of policy change at their school. Those are groups that very much resemble your traditional social movement groups. But then I also talk about LGBTQ groups that are what I call educational groups. They are more interested not in changing university policies so much as changing people's hearts and minds. They want to change the campus culture at their school so that it's more inclusive of LGBTQ students. And they do so uh, usually not through contentious methods, but through pretty institutionalized conciliatory methods like uh, holding lectures, movie showings, uh, putting on safe zone trainings. Those were pretty common types of LGBTQ groups at these Christian colleges and universities. Uh, and then a final type of LGBTQ group that I identify, what I call a solidarity group, or that you might hear of as an affinity group. These are basically groups that are intended to be by and for LGBTQ students. These are groups that try to carve out safe spaces on their campuses for LGBTQ students to meet each other, to talk about issues they're going through, sometimes to date each other, but, but really more than anything, just to support each other in their life journeys. So those types of groups are not ones you might normally think of as activist groups, but I call them activist groups because they were making students more confident about their own identities as LGBTQ people. They were doing important work in emboldening students to be more outspoken when they hear discrimination talk about LGBTQ people in their classrooms. They embolden students to come out to their families, to their friends. And as we know, an important reason why the LGBTQ movement has made progress in the United States is because LGBTQ people are just being more open about their own identities and having those important one-by-one -one conversations.
I think one of the great contributions of your book, Jonathan, is this expanding the range of things that scholars can count as aspects of movements that don't have that direct confrontational maybe bent, but are still intent on change at, at various levels of the institution, whether that's just among students who identify as LGBTQ themselves or as agents for education and empowerment of those members, but also potential allies on their campuses. Well, I happen to know that in college, you were involved in a movement organization that actually toured Christian colleges and universities yourself. So can you tell us about your experience with Soul Force, what that was and what that group did? Yeah, absolutely. So I myself attended a Christian college, a university uh, named Stanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, that's associated with the Alabama Baptist Convention. Uh, so that's how I first got interested in just this general topic. I was a gay student there involved in uh, eventually starting an LGBTQ student group. But when I first attended Stanford University, University as a freshman, the school actually had a student handbook ban on what they called homosexual acts or homosexual behavior. Basically, if you're a man and you did so much as hold another man's hand, uh, kiss another man, you could be suspended from the school uh, or at least incur a very large fine. So sounds like a broad category of behavior, Jonathan. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like homosexual act could be just about anything. Playing video games while gay, playing chess while gay. It certainly would give them grounds to take all sorts of discriminatory actions against gay, lesbian, bisexual students. So yeah, my first year at Stanford, I was pretty quiet about my own sexual orientation, but I was inspired my second semester there by this group you're talking about, Soul Force. They were taking a nationwide tour of Christian college colleges and universities with discriminatory student handbook bans. And they were going to campuses like Samford, walking onto these campuses and organizing town hall meetings, organizing vigils, going into classrooms, trying to talk with students about LGBTQ issues. And I was really inspired by their visit. And that group, Soul Force, actually convinced Samford after my first year to remove homosexual acts from its student handbook. So now today their student handbook simply has a ban on what they call heterosexual slash homosexual intercourse. So at least in theory, gay, lesbian, bisexual students are not treated differently than heterosexual students. But yeah, Soul Force is this amazing group that's been going on to Christian colleges and campuses uh, for many years now, challenging discriminatory policies. But now it's actually funding a nationwide lawsuit against Christian colleges and universities that receive waivers from the U.S. Department of Education so that they can still discriminate against uh, students on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. You know, the federal government actually is subsidizing Christian colleges and universities, when you think about it, giving them a lot of student loans, giving them other types of grants, despite the fact that they really aren't providing equal treatment to all students who end up going through their doors. Just to um, be really clear, so in the United States, any college or university, public or private, that accepts federal resources in the form of either loans or maybe even gr or grants to their students or receives other kinds of federal funding in terms of research and so forth, unless they have an exemption, have to not discriminate against people on the basis of race and gender and veteran status and sexuality and age and just the kind of typical list that's required for any kind of federal contractor, federal, federal contractor. But what you're saying is, Christian, some Christian college universities, maybe maybe uh, maybe non-Christian college and universities, have applied and received exemptions specifically around the sexuality portion of that non-discrimination policy, so that they can continue to take the money for tuition from students, but not have to comply with the non-discrimination 
policies that they would otherwise be subject to. Yeah, exactly. This lawsuit is trying to say to Christian colleges and universities that if you want to discriminate against students on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, fine, but you can't take all this government money. You can't take all the student loan money. And if you are going to receive a lot of government support, you are going to be partially subsidized by the U.S. federal government, then you need to treat LGBTQ students just the same way as you treat heterosexual and cisgender students. Well, as you know, Abilene Christian University is on the list of universities with those exemptions. And it certainly is an issue here that many people discuss. So this lawsuit, if I have this detail correctly, it's a class action lawsuit. And it was filed by the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, or REAP, who did sue the Department of Education, arguing that more than 200 religiously affiliated colleges and universities should no longer be granted exempt from the non-discrimination policy. You've been doing research on LGBTQ activism in Christian colleges and universities for, can you tell us more about the lawsuit and any role that you have? with it? Yeah, absolutely. The lawsuit was class action lawsuit and it was filed in courts early 2021. And pretty quickly, the Biden-Harris administration, specifically its attorney general, Merrick Garland, came out and said that they were going to vigorously defend this lawsuit, that their interests were in line with those of Christian colleges and universities. So this lawsuit, yeah, it's actually against uh, the federal government, uh, which is currently the Biden-Harris administration. The CCCU, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, is actually also a defendant on the lawsuit now. And the lawsuit is still in a pretty early stage. There was a preliminary injunction hearing in fall 2021. And the purpose of that preliminary injunction hearing is to be able to say to Christian colleges and universities that you can't discriminate against the people who have signed on to the class action lawsuit while this lawsuit is working its way through the courts. They haven't actually even issued a, a ruling on that preliminary injunction hearing, but that's the stage the lawsuit's currently at. I was honored to be able to submit expert testimony, be an expert witness for that lawsuit. I basically compiled a report summarizing a lot of the research I've done on the landscape of LGBTQ groups and discrimination at Christian colleges and universities, but we're waiting to hear back about the outcome. First of all, what a great example of how a line of research that you as a graduate student and then as a faculty member have worked on and continue to develop, but also just the public sociology aspect of this, like actually doing work that's relevant to the political and legal landscape in this area. So real talk about how uh, sociology and sociological research can form lawsuits and, and, and work for more just outcomes for people who are treated in discriminatory ways. Maybe you can back up and give folks some background. You mentioned that the lawsuit is talking about 200 religiously affiliated colleges and universities, but how many religiously affiliated colleges and universities are there in the U.S.? And what proportion would you say have policies that discriminate against LGBTQ students, faculty, or staff? And then what can you tell us about what your research has found about why some Christian colleges and universities discriminate and others don't? Yeah, another great question. So beyond the in-depth interviews that I conducted at Christian colleges and universities, I have also done a lot of more quantitative work on Christian colleges and universities. I built a database of every Christian college and university in the United States. There are nearly 700, and I went to their school websites. I read through their student handbooks, and I identified which ones had officially recognized LGBTQ student groups, uh, which ones had 
non-discrimination policies inclusive sexual orientation and gender identity, and which ones had these discriminatory handbook bans on so-called homosexual acts and homosexual behavior. And I found that 55% of Christian colleges and universities actually have non-discrimination statements inclusive of sexual orientation. So the majority of Christian colleges and universities at least state that they will not discriminate against gay, lesbian, bisexual students. And actually something I'll add is that the majority of these schools are actually associated with religious traditions like the Roman Catholic Church, denominations like the United Methodist Church that actually say that same-sex relationships are sinful. But these schools kind of see their own mission as broader than simply serving Catholics or United Methodists. They see the mission of a Christian college and university as providing an important service education to everyone in the community. And so they've chosen not to discriminate. I also found that 45% of schools have officially recognized LGBTQ student groups. And in a follow-up study, I showed that the number has actually gotten closer to 50%. Again, nearly half of schools have safe spaces or other types of organizations that are oriented toward LGBTQ students. But as we've been talking about, there's still a lot of work to do. Back in 2013, 2014, when I was collecting these data, only 10% of schools had gender identity in their non-discrimination policy. So transgender students often face a much tougher campus climate compared to gay, lesbian, bisexual students. And nearly a third of all Christian colleges and universities in the United States have bans on homosexual behavior in their student handbook. And Dan, you and I more recently have been collecting a lot of data on Christian colleges and universities' housing policies. We're finding that very, very few Christian colleges and universities will provide gender-neutral housing. So if a student comes out as trans, they may not be able to live in the dorm of their choice. If a person's non-binary, they may be forced to still publicly identify as male or female and and to live in a a residence hall that's deemed as being male only or female only. So there are ongoing issues that we're really still kind of compiling data on at Christian colleges and universities, but that's basically the data that I have at my fingertips right now. One of the things I heard in there was there are some religious traditions that really believe that their educational mission is for all members of the community. And those groups are more likely to say, we're not going to discriminate on the basis of gender identity, sexual orientation, and, and so forth. Is the inverse true for the schools that don't include LGBT status as a protected category in their non-discrimination policy? Do you think it's the case that they do that because they're deeply held religious beliefs? Is it that they believe they're serving a more narrow slice of the community, sort of co-religionists more often, or something else going on? No, I think that's right. The, the vast majority of schools with more discriminatory policies are aligned with white evangelical Protestant denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention, Church of Christ, or associated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church. And they do kind of think of their primary mission as serving conservative Christian students. And they try to develop campus policies, student handbook policies that require that students live up to the more conservative Christian standards, conservative Christian policies of their their parent denominations. I mean, I can't speak to all those other institutions, but it's clear that at the place I'm at, the proportion of students who come from uh, Churches of Christ backgrounds has been declining, and even you could say plummeting in the last 20 or 30 years. But those students are being replaced by a lot of non-denominational 
evangelical, either Baptists or former Baptist kind of congregations. And so that definitely changes the mix of students, but I'm not sure it changes the political context of the campus vis-a-vis these, these policies. And you know, LGBTQ students have won some important victories, important recognition, even at some of the more conservative Christian colleges and universities that are out there that might be aligned with the evangelical Protestant denominations. But progress is always uncertain. And I hear a lot of stories of campuses where LGBTQ students start to make some progress, but the school quickly reverses themselves. So right now in Oklahoma, there's a university called Oklahoma Christian University that's aligned with the Churches of Christ. And that school had slowly been taking some steps to welcome LGBTQ students more into campus life. For example, there had been chapels at the school held every single week that attracted LGBTQ students that were kind of primarily oriented toward LGBTQ students and that affirmed the students' identities. But the school has recently done away with this chapels. They fired some of the staff members who were associated with putting on those chapels. And just recently, a story making the headlines is that the school suddenly fired a professor who had been there for over 40 years, simply because he brought in a guest speaker that told his class that he was gay. Wow. And it's a pretty traumatic kind of move by the school that's making a lot of headlines right now and just really highlights the fact that we can't become complacent. And that history is not necessarily a forward march um, progress. Yeah, I was a little bit aware of the Oklahoma Christian situation. And when I think about that, the idea that even making someone aware that there is a gay person in presence of other students just speaks to a level of fear, basic homophobia, or what? You know, heterosexism that really makes you question the other aspects of a school like that. If this topic is off limits, are there other topics that are are off limits? That's a terrible situation for that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, because of the current U.S. government policies, schools like Oklahoma Christian University feel like they can take this dramatic measures to fire longtime faculty members who are supportive of LGBTQ rights. So right now I know that professor is kind of weighing his options, trying to decide whether to file a lawsuit that can at least challenge his firing because of due process concerns. And one of the interesting plot twists of that saga is uh, the lawyer defending the fired professor is actually a former president of Oklahoma Christian University. (laughs) And they've been outspoken in the media trying to draw attention to the case. So it's one your listeners certainly might keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. We should definitely be following that. Well, switching gears a little bit, your recent work discusses what you call educational opportunity structures and discusses how these opportunity structures affect whether students are able to form activist groups and create change at their schools. So can you unpack, explain that concept for us? You know, I've been doing a lot of recent work, not only on Christian colleges and universities, but just on U.S. colleges and universities in general. So I've also built a database of the nearly 2,000 four-year not-for-profit colleges and universities, and together with a few graduate students here at Oklahoma State, uh, Jericho McElroy, Jessica Shackle, Truba Das, who I definitely want to give shout-outs to, we built a database of 16 different types of activist groups, ranging from LGBTQ groups to student of color organizations, minority religious student groups, again, trying to explain why some colleges and universities are home to marginalized student groups while others are not. And we've identified certain characteristics of colleges and universities that make up what we call educational opportunity structures that seem to explain a lot of the variation in the presence of student groups across schools. So we're arguing that, for example, public colleges and universities in general are more typically home to student groups as compared to private colleges and universities. 
universities, especially marginalized student groups, like minority religious student groups, LGBTQ student groups, because they've cultivated reputations as being open to all members of the public, almost by definition, whereas private universities often have a more exclusive identity. Secular colleges and universities similarly are, are just more likely to be home to different types of student groups as compared to religious colleges and universities. Because again, religious colleges and universities actually have a legal ability to discriminate against students on the basis of religious belief or sexual orientation or gender identity, where secular schools typically have some characteristics that they can't discriminate against students on the basis of. And so schools, secular or religious identity is another component of what we call educational opportunity structures. And we also argue that a school's wealth is an important facet of an educational opportunity structure that can explain why some schools are home to student groups, whereas others are not. Really wealthy schools typically have more money to actually give to student organizations to help fund their activities. And they also have more money to fund student affairs professionals who often serve as advisors of these student groups, whose jobs are very often to promote programming for students on campus. And so wealthier schools we're showing through a series of publications are more likely to be home to student groups as compared to schools that have smaller endowments. Well, this is a great lead into another paper that you wrote about the religious freedom movement at Vanderbilt and the role of educational opportunity structures in the outcomes of that movement. When we say religious freedom, we're, we're not meaning freedom for everybody. We're meaning freedom to discriminate on the basis of a religious organization belief. Yeah. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that situation and about how educational opportunity structures played a part in the outcomes. When I was a graduate student at Vanderbilt, there was a really fascinating but troubling student movement build itself as a religious freedom movement at Vanderbilt that was trying to pressure the schools to allow Christian student groups or other religious student groups to discriminate against students on the basis of sexual orientation and religious beliefs. So they were arguing that fellowship of Christian athletes should be able to require that its president, its vice president, its other leaders be Christian and that they be heterosexual, that they be cis gender. And they were doing a lot of work on campus to try to hold protests, hold vigils, and just raise awareness and pressure the school to change its policies to allow discrimination. But Vanderbilt, to its credit, withstood the religious freedom mobilization. And part of why it could withstand the mobilization is because it was a private university. And it had greater latitude to decide what kind of student groups they're going to recognize and what kind of student groups they will not. The Tennessee state legislature actually ended up passing a bill to try to require that a private university allow religious organizations to exist on campus, even if they discriminate. But the governor of Tennessee vetoed that bill. So Vanderbilt's status as a private university and a secular university explained a lot about why the religious freedom movement there was not successful. What I find fascinating about these religious freedom movements is that they seem to have a very narrow account of Christianity itself, if they're Christian, or any kind of religious tradition, right? So to assume that you can define Christian as being only affirming heterosexual relationships or only affirming cisgender people or only affirming certain kinds of gender presentation, it's just not consistent with the diversity of actually existing Christian traditions and sets of beliefs that actually really do exist in the world. So one wonders about the religious freedom of the people who would claim identity as Christians who are also in same-sex relationships, who are also gender non-conforming, who are also precisely the people that such a policy from the Fellowship of Christian Athletes would discriminate against or formally bar from leadership. 
Yeah, the very meaning of the term religious freedom and religious liberty has really changed throughout U.S. history. I mean, it used to be when people were calling for religious freedom, religious liberty, it meant they were calling for the ability to practice their religion without interference, without oppression from the government. So Mormons in the 1840s, 1850s were certainly calling for the U.S. government to stop oppressing them, to allow them to gather communally and worship together. But whereas religious freedom, religious liberty used to mean freedom from discrimination. Now it seems to mean the freedom to discriminate against other people. And the courts are certainly trying to work out right now all the implications of these new religious freedom claims. I wonder, Jonathan, if you could tell us more about the Belmont case. My recollection is that, as you say, there was a soccer coach who came out to her team. Perhaps she was engaged or had been married or was about to be married under the Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage across the country. What was the role of Mike Kerb in that? Can you tell that story? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the full story is this is in the fall of 2010. There was a soccer coach who had actually told her soccer team not only that she was a lesbian, but that she was about to have a baby um, with her same-sex partner. This is before Obergefell. That's right. Yeah. And we really actually still don't know what exactly happened. The soccer coach and the school signed non-disclosure agreements that kind of prohibited them from talking publicly about the circumstances of the coach's sudden departure. But as we talked about, the students quickly mobilized to try to pressure the school to enact more inclusive non-discrimination policies. But one of the interesting parts of that story is that Belmont had a very rich donor, Mike Kerb, who was was the head of Curb Records in Nashville. He'd also been the former Republican Lieutenant Governor of California. But when the students were mobilizing, spoke out in the press and said, it's time for Belmont to decide whether it wants to be a church or whether it wants to be a university. And he went so far as to say something like, if Belmont does not change its policies to be more inclusive of LGBTQ people, then I will continue speaking out about this for the rest of my life. And a lot of people would certainly say, and I would say that he played a huge role in trying to convince Belmont University to change its policies and in, indeed successfully pressuring them to change their policies. You know, every Christian college and university in the United States, I, I guess I haven't interviewed people at every Christian college or university in the United States, but I have to imagine that this is true. In any school, you're going to find some allies. You're going to find some administrators, some faculty, some staff who would like to be more inclusive of LGBTQ people. But oftentimes these Christian colleges and universities receive funding from very conservative religious groups and from very conservative churches and donors that make them very wary of taking those public steps to accept LGBTQ people. So allies, especially rich allies, have a very important role to play in trying to shift Christian colleges and universities toward a more inclusive stance. I think Belmont certainly illustrates that fact. I can only imagine the situation that the Belmont administration and maybe the trustees were in. I think Herb may have been a trustee, but his name is actually on the College of Music Business there. So imagine if you're an administrator and the namesake, person who has donated so much money to your institution comes out and says, this is a decision moment. And you know, I don't know whether he said this outright or just the implied threat of withholding any future support, financial or otherwise, to the institution yep. may have been in there somewhere. Of course, we don't know for sure. But you can certainly imagine. And there have been other cases 
of universities with people with deep pockets making significant requests of university administrators. In this case, it was for equal treatment. You know, there have been cases where the opposite has occurred as well. All right, Jonathan, well, aside from the project that you and I are working on, what else are you working on these days that we can look forward to? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I've been publishing a series of papers just about student groups at all U.S. colleges and universities. So I have papers coming out in places like Sociology of Education about the presence of Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim student groups at U.S. colleges and universities. Um, I have a paper coming out with a graduate student, Jessica Shackle, in Sociology of Race and Ethnicity Journal about Black, Latinx, Asian, and Native American student groups at U.S. colleges and universities applying this educational opportunity structure framework that we talked about to try to help explain the presence of student groups at these schools. Also this weekend, I'm going up to, and we're talking in April 2022, I'm heading up to the Midwest Sociological Society Conference in Chicago, Illinois, to present a paper about Republican and Democratic student groups at U.S. colleges and universities. I'm really excited about this paper. We are trying to critically engage this popular media discourse that says that most colleges and universities are bastions of liberalism, where faculty are all very progressive, the students are outspoken liberals, that the campus organizational scenes are dominated by more progressive student groups. So you'd expect that Democratic student groups would be a lot more common than Republican student groups, unless you were maybe at a conservative Christian university. Maybe there, it'd be more likely to see a Republican student group than Democratic student group. But in the paper, we report that the number of colleges and universities with Democratic student groups is basically the same as the number with Republican student groups. About 40% of all colleges and universities have Democratic student groups. Almost 40% have Republican student groups. And the characteristics associated with schools that have Democratic student groups are the exact same as those associated with Republican student groups. I mean, the exact same. So there's not what we call a set of red schools that are out there and a set of blue schools, but there are just certain schools where it's just more likely to have student groups, period, versus a set of schools that are not as focused on promoting a vibrant student organizational scene. Yeah, so perhaps those campuses with both, it's not that they are ideologically one-sided, it's that they have representation from both political parties. And probably your data can't speak to sort of how healthy any kind of discourse or conflict is between those two groups. That would be really interesting to think about campuses as spaces where people can affiliate, but also people can have some of those more challenging conversations. Obviously, there's a whole literature on how to do that in productive ways we don't have time to get into today. Yeah, I've really enjoyed kind of getting more and more into just research on student organizations. And what I'm continually struck by as I write more and more of these papers is that there are some types of student organizations that people have just literally never studied. I mean, I can't believe I'm about to make this statement in a presentation, in a paper, but I cannot find a single paper out there about college Democrats, college Democratic student organization. My research assistants and I have searched far and wide. We've done many hours of digging through bibliographic databases, through Google Scholar, But somehow since 1932, people have just not studied these organizations. College Republicans, there's a few works out there, especially there's this book called Becoming Right by a couple of sociologists, but it's really just a small handful. Oh, I think I heard about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Just a small handful of studies. Some of these minority religious student groups were 
publishing on, just not a lot of research out there. So if you're listening and you're interested in diving into this line of research, just know that you may be doing some trailblazing. You may be filling in some major gaps in our scholarly knowledge. But if please, if you're out there listening and you know of some research on college Democrats, please send me an email. I would love to be able to, to cite more of it. At the very least, we need to know a lot more about student organizations, the reasons they form and the kinds of impacts they're having on their campuses and on their students. I can think of several research questions in terms of pathways into activists' careers or even like political careers, people who go from college Democrats to law school to activist careers, those kinds of things. And, you know, what role do these organizations play in the leadership development that they could facilitate in getting students connected? Here at ACU, the students that I work with and the ACU Democrats, several of them are connected to both the um, Texas College Democrats, so the party apparatus for, for college students, and also parties in other states. So students are working uh, during yeah. election season for political parties in as far away as Wisconsin, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. You know, in, in graduate school, I sometimes heard the line, if something hasn't been studied by now, it's there's probably a reason for it. It's probably not important. But I, I just don't think you can make the these claims with regard to a lot of these student organizations like you're talking about with the College Democrats. I mean, they've served as starting points for a lot of important politicians' careers. Hillary Clinton actually uh, was president of uh, not the College Democrats, but the College Republicans when she was in college, the current speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi was in the College Democrats, Paul Ryan was in the College Republicans. I mean, a, a lot of kind of heavy hitters in both parties kind of got their starts in these organizations. And it's also true that lots of other student organizations on college campuses need to be studied more because I think they play really important roles in people's lives. Yeah. I mean, how are you fill internships at Heritage Foundation? Yeah. You know? Yep. Anyway, Jonathan, it's so good to talk with you about these issues in your research. You ask folks to reach out to you via email, and of course, they can find your email on your website. I know you have a Twitter presence. If you're okay with that, would you just share your Twitter handle so people can follow you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Yeah, absolutely. You can connect with me on Twitter at J Coley Sociology, J-C-O-L-E-Y Sociology. And my website is jonathancoley.com. All right. Well, that's how you can follow Jonathan and all the awesome work that he is doing with his graduate students at Oklahoma State and also with folks like me. So looking forward to learning more about this new work that you're doing, Jonathan. I want to transition now to our revitalized, revamped banter segment. So this is where we talk about what else is going on in in the world and in our lives, maybe off the clock or even things that are related to academics and the academic profession. So Jonathan, we talked a little bit earlier. I know you're into the Righteous Gemstones, which I have not watched, but maybe you could tell us about it. Oh, Righteous Gemstones is great. It's about a televangelist family that gets very rich off of religious ministry. And it's an HBO show. So as you might expect, there's a surprising amount of salty language as well as violence, murder. It gets pretty wild. But for those into the sociology of religion, that's a show you might check out. John Goodman is the uh, primary televangelist on that show. Oh, is he? Great. That's right. St. Louis native, went to college in my hometown. If you ever fly into the Springfield airport, it's his voice you'll hear on the loudspeakers. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Let's talk about the thing that we both have watched. I've only watched the first season, though. Jonathan, I know you're you're somewhat of a reality TV fan. We both watched at least the first season of Love is Blind. I had to stop watching it. I just I couldn't keep up with the drama of it and the fact that 
this is a show that just features a very high heartbreak quotient. You know, when we follow these couples who, for those of you who don't know, the premise is you have a series of dates with another person or a set of other people, and you can't see them though. It's all audio. There are these little pods that they talk across. And of course, there's lots of video and lighting and mics and things that capture all of the interaction. There's a lot of alcohol use during these dates. In any case, what tip, what happens for some of the people is that they couple up and then there's a proposal. And so someone proposes marriage, typically the man, I guess. And then that's when the two people actually meet in person and get to see each other for the first time. And often that's a very dramatic encounter as many encounters on reality TV are, but then they go on a tour visiting each other's families and vacation together and things like that to leading up to the wedding day. And the question is, of course, will they go through with this or not? So what do you think, Jonathan? I mean, as far as reality TV goes, pretty good? Oh, it's it's certainly uh, one of the more dramatic ones. They always, these reality shows always try to say they're dramatic, but this one, as you mentioned, has a lot of heartbreak and a lot of fighting. It's, it's definitely one of the more engrossing dating shows out there. I would really like to see a, a same-sex version uh, of one of these shows. There's another show on Netflix I haven't actually seen called The Ultimatum, where apparently the second season is going to be a all-female LGBTQ cast. Oh, very interesting. So uh, again, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I'd love to see a gay or lesbian version. I'm not really sure though. Or bisexual version. Not sure they'll be doing that with The Bachelor and Bachelorette anytime soon, but maybe for the streaming services. Yeah. Well, that would be super, super interesting. Might reduce any stigma around those relationships and show just how similar they are often to um, the cisgender heterosexual relationships. How similar and, and similarly dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, enough about relationships, Jonathan. <laughs> Well, we, as you mentioned, we're recording, this is April 12th, uh, 2022, and we're in a really contentious political partisan environment when it comes to teaching our discipline, right? I mean, I was actually just at the Pacific Sociological Association. Shout out to Laura Bristow and President Wendy Ying and all the folks who put that conference together. It was really fantastic in Sacramento. And I gave a talk about teaching CRT in my context here. And, you know, in the state of Texas, there are laws on the books that restrict the teaching of divisive concepts and basically aiming at what people think of as critical race theory in K-12 public context. Lots of things are going on around CRT. CRT bands. Those of you who have been listening to the Annex, you know we had an episode with uh, University of Idaho sociologists and other, other folks who teach topics that are under threat by partisan actors in that state. What can you tell us about CRT in Oklahoma? Are there bills that have been passed or proposed to restrict that content or other things we should be aware of as folks interested in academic freedom and, and the ability to teach our disciplines as best we can? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Oklahoma state I'm in is the third most Republican state in the country. It had the third highest percent vote for Donald Trump in the 2016 and I believe 2020 presidential election. So it's been following a lot of these red state trends and passing some really divisive uh, legislation to use a, a word that uh, some of the people in Tennessee are picking up on. But um, in Oklahoma, they passed a law just this past week trying to ban all abortions in the state, except those that endanger the life of the mother. They've passed legislation recently banning transgender people from participating in high school sports. And then as you're referencing, they're now banning the discussion of critical race theory in schools. It's most people's interpretation that the, the ban only applies to K-12 schools, so not colleges and universities in Oklahoma. But it certainly sent chills up a lot of educators' spine. I mean, as a lot of commentators have pointed out, most fifth grade teachers are not exactly giving in-depth lectures about critical race theory 
in their classes. But, you know, critical race theory draws attention to just the role of racism in U.S. history, uh, how it's been embedded in a lot of our laws, in the design of our constitution. And so are we not allowed to teach about social movements that have tried to challenge racially discriminatory laws, like the civil rights movement? Are we not allowed to teach about slavery? Are we not allowed to teach about critical race theory pants, <laughs> which are uh, certainly evidence of how racism is embedded in U.S. law. And you're, you're definitely seeing a lot of teachers being demoralized by some of these laws. Yeah, I really think that the laws usually are written in very broad, unclear ways. And so if it's a divisive concepts bill, for example, that says you can't talk about divisive concepts, well, divisive for whom? Yes. And they seem to be written in ways that would actually bolster the argument for critical race theorists themselves. I know Victor Ray at the University of Iowa is working on a book called On Critical Race Theory that's going to come out right. this fall that I am imagining he's going to make a point like this about these, these laws. Uh, I haven't read the manuscript yet, but Victor, hit me up if you're listening. I haven't pre-ordered. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what the goal seems to be chilling all this speech by making the line so unclear, you can't really tell when you're running afoul of it. And of course, you know, people have stakes in keeping their jobs yep. and remaining employed and paying their bills and things. And, you know, in our society, if you are not employed, it's very difficult to do those things, at least for any long period of time. You know, as the instructors, like I believe his name is Matthew Harms, maybe in Tennessee, found out recently when he was just teaching a contemporary issues in American society mm -hmm. class. So the other thing I am interested in is whether or not these bans are going to stay at K-12. And indications are they're probably not going to stay in K-12. Uh, of course, private universities and public universities are subject to different kinds of rules. And it's difficult to imagine that a state legislature would pass something that might apply to private universities, although you really can't rule it out, as your example with Vanderbilt and the so-called religious freedom movement was referencing, right, how the Tennessee state legislature tried to pass a law that would, in fact, bind Vanderbilt University as a private institution. Yep. So... What can you tell us about your student who's doing a dissertation on the CRT ban in, in Oklahoma? I know that that person's early in their process. Yeah. One of my PhD students, uh, Jessica Shackle, one of our star PhD students in the Department of Sociology at Oklahoma State University for sure, is getting ready to go into the field to interview teachers about their experiences talking about race, gender, sexuality now in schools. And she's wanting to shed light on ways that teachers try to engage in occupational activism and try to use their position as teachers to engage in these now controversial dialogues and try to sometimes resist what the law says or what the law tries to imply or what the law tries to, the, the speech that the laws try to chill. She wants to understand kind of the conditions under which teachers are still willing to talk about race, gender, sexuality issues. So I'm really excited to see her research develop. She's also done some really interesting research on teachers' movements in Oklahoma. More generally, there was a major teacher walkout in Oklahoma a few years ago where teachers were calling for more pay as well as for just more funding for their schools. She has a piece coming out in Sociological Focus that draws on that in-depth interview work. I do remember those teachers in the streets, you know, wearing red for Ed. There was a, quite a movement pre-pandemic that got teachers in the street. My understanding is that Oklahoma went to like four-day school weeks. Obviously, all of our institutions and society are interconnected. So when you lose a day of instruction for K-12 public schools in Oklahoma, 
then someone has to be responsible for childcare during that Friday or whatever day it is that they don't hold classes. And so education, of course, is, is tied to the rest of the economy in terms of people's ability to go to work. And for people who work hourly, losing one fifth of your income because your child or children are not in school sounds like a, a way to make people who are already marginalized and perhaps barely making ends meet, make their lives harder, give them even more hardship. Obviously, we're still in pandemic conditions and books like Jessica Clarko at Indiana have been doing great work documenting how families and particularly women have borne the brunt of the responsibility for childcare as schools and daycare centers and other kinds of childcare services have closed. That's really important work. We'll look forward to learning more about what she finds as that work progresses. Of course, here in Texas, speaking of laws, you know, there was just the law passed that bans gender affirming yep. care for transgender young people in, in this state. Just so people know that gender affirming care does not mean that you provide surgery for someone who's eight or nine years old, but that there are a series of steps that have been outlined by doctors and medical professionals approved and supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics on the appropriate steps to take if, if a person believes that they're they're transgender, even at a young age. Part of me just wonders what or who, what kind of forces are kind of behind this, because it seems like lots of things are happening in several states at the same time. And you mentioned the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. There's also you know, the Council for National Policy and other groups that seem to be coordinating these things across the country. So I think scholars like Ann Nelson and other other folks have been have been tracking that. We don't have to talk about that that here, but I think all of these things have real implications for the quality of life in our country. And of course, when it comes to teaching things like CRT or any kind of you know gender affirming discussions or courses on particularly certain kinds of campuses, we ought to be thinking about that from an academic freedom standpoint for sure. Absolutely. You know, Florida's passed that don't say gay bill or people call it don't say gay bill that prohibits certain elementary school teachers from talking about sexual orientation and gender identity in the classroom, which of course has made some people wonder, are you allowed to talk about heterosexual marriage now and refer to students with he him, she, her pronouns? Are we supposed to, you know, be shy about affirming cisgender students' gender identities now? These laws are, as we've been talking about, sometimes so vague. And I think the purpose is certainly to just kind of chill speech and make people afraid to talk about topics that are really important to talk about in a democratic society. Yeah, exactly. I did see that Twitter post that apparently it was from a, a teacher in, in Florida who said, you know, I can no longer use he or she, you know, so I have to go with gender neutral pronouns now. And I assume it's meant to both like sort of poke the bear about what the implications of these laws might be, but also just to kind of poke fun at the whole process, it's a little satirical at the same time. But it really does speak to sort of who the imagined people are and these divides that are being pressed in our society right now between the authentic Americans who are usually framed as white, cisgender, heterosexual people, and then everyone else is somehow less American or less worthy of inclusion in our democracy. And so folks ought to be concerned, I would think, if you really do believe in legitimate equality for all people in the United States. States. Yeah. And the, they don't say gay, Bill. I mean, in addition to what you said about elementary schools, this clause in there about developmentally appropriate and almost like in any public education setting really does, I think, open the door to levels beyond elementary school. And then, of course, if the goal is to chill speech and to prevent discussion, this is a good way to do it by putting clauses in there that leave ambiguity about when it is appropriate to talk about sexuality just in general with students. And the idea that the only students that matter are the heterosexual ones and that heterosexual students are some, in some ways harmed with knowledge of the fact that anything other than heterosexuality exists 
just seems to be, you know, obviously the definition of heteronormativity, but also can do real harm to students who are gay or lesbian or bisexual who wouldn't necessarily have access to information that would help them understand their sexual identity. So what we're missing is both sort of how these laws are framed, but also the real harm. What I want to say is these laws are not without serious consequence because they're framed as privileging only certain members of our communities. Indeed. So there's a lot to be concerned about, Jonathan. Jonathan, you know, no end of, of things to discuss and, and to really use sociological tools to kind of investigate, think about what those impacts are and how groups are trying to press their case for political, social, and economic equality in our society. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us on the Annex. It's so great to see you. Thanks for sharing all your work. And we will look forward to hearing more about the rest of your work as you continue to publish. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. This is Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Thanks so much to Joe Cohen, who directs the Queen's Podcast Lab, to Lena Orsa, who did our music, and a special thanks to Dr. Jonathan Coley, Associate Professor of Sociology, Oklahoma State University. Congratulations on tenure, Jonathan. And thanks also to our producers. Couldn't have done it without you. We'll see you next time.